Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the State of Play podcast, episode 24. Pepperish is still in timeout, so I'll be stepping in. Stepping in, Martino Puccio, as you can tell now. I've been here for... Damn, I don't even know what episode number it is already. I've been like, this is my almost fifth one, I think. It's a, <laughs> a part of the reboot, been a mainstay. Uh, joining us, as always, is Matt Santangelo and Zach Lowy, uh, our special guest for today. What's going on, guys? Doing pretty well, Martino. Glad to be back on. And, of course, it's uh, also great to have Zach on here for um, pretty much... Uh, he's at the Swiss Army knife of uh, football content and coverage, so I know he's going to be able to touch on plenty of stuff we're going to go into uh, with this episode, and uh, it's great to have you on, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I've been working with Matt for a while, and I know he's really excited about uh, this podcast, so... Uh, I'm happy to come on and talk football. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you now. It's uh, another American trio for us. Um, I know Zach is on the East Coast as well, I'm pretty sure, right? Um, So we'll just hop right into it. As always, we start off with the Premier League. Um, I mean, there's just so much going on. Um, Obviously, we'll we'll touch... I want to touch on the big matchup first between Liverpool and City. Um, so much going on in this match. Obviously, City still thin at the center back position. Liverpool really just took advantage of that, in my opinion, in this matchup. City just, like, I, I know there were controversies with VAR and all of that, but at the same time, it just looks like Liverpool's just head and shoulders above everyone else in the Premier League. So we'll start off with you, Zach. What did you make of the match so far? Um, I guess it wasn't really surprising. I mean... Uh, Liverpool are my favorites to win both the Premier League and the Champions League. So uh, I guess it was a bit surprising um, how how quickly uh, City capitulated. I mean, obviously Liverpool are a team that likes to get going early, but I thought that uh, City could have had an even contest. There were some refereeing uh, issues, that I thought went in Liverpool's favor. But overall, I think that Liverpool deserved to win. And uh, City, on the other hand, they they really don't look that good. I mean, I think they would need uh, a massive investment in January to have a shot at winning the title. Um, but the fact is, uh, there's, there's only so many available players who can uh, improve them to the point where they can actually mount a a feasible title fest and uh, a feasible you know title race and I think that a lot of people forget that the the mental aspect that that that's going on here I mean City are pretty I would say they're they're mostly focused on winning the Champions League after winning two straight Premier Leagues and a domestic treble so it's sort of hard to uh, keep up that same uh, motivation and energy just mentally when it comes to uh, fighting for the Premier League, whereas Liverpool, obviously, they're trying to win their first Premier League title ever. Um, but yeah, overall, Liverpool just look head and shoulders above everybody in Europe, whereas City pretty much look uh, really depleted and fatigued. And um, and yeah, it's it was clear who the better side was. Matt? Yeah, I, I think Zach nailed it on the head. You know, I think there was... Um, in the coming into this game, it was it was one of those things where obviously City were able to get a victory 
it could have completely altered uh, the title race. It gives that good momentum. It's like even on city city's maybe worst day or where they're maybe not at full fitness or full uh, you know performance level, they're still able to outbest or outclass Liverpool. And that just obviously was the complete opposite in this one. A 3-0 advantage for Liverpool, as Zach just mentioned. They like to get going early, and that's exactly what they did. Um, Salah looks solid. They're, they're attacking front three, did everything they needed to do. Uh, but just top to bottom, you know, even Dijon Lovren, who was linked to AC Milan in the summer, um, and is loosely, I guess, still linked to them as well for January, he was a, was a pretty solid contributor to the to the victory as well. And, you know, look, when, when Liverpool are playing at this level, um, as Zach alluded to, you know, they got to be favorites to win the title now with the, with the gap advantage they have um, over City and, and some of the other clubs that are creeping up in the top four race. And if you're a Liverpool fan, you got to feel like if you can't win it this year, then when are you going to win it, right? Because I think you look at, again, the spread in the, in, in the, in the table, um, a factor compounded with the fact that City aren't playing their best. And when clubs aren't playing their best at this point of the season, we talked about this in the previous episode, Martino, is that this is where you really start to kind of assert yourself and, and really start to establish whether or not you're a contender or pretender and get into that, that form you need in order to really kind of put your foot down, leave your footprint, and eventually, you know, meet the objectives that you set out for yourself at the beginning of the season. And that's what Liverpool are doing. And, um, yeah, a very convincing 3-1 victory for them on the weekend. Of course, with all the uh, memes and gifts with the Pep Guardiola and the uh, VAR controversy, which, you know, it's, it's been plenty of that this year, right? And I'm kind of, I kind of expected that with it being the biggest league in football. Week-to-week, um, week, we're just seeing so many instances where, there's so much controversy surrounding this great technology, but the way it's kind of implemented or being used um, on a week-to-week basis, and you, you know, you kind of wonder down the road or down the down the stretch of the season whether or not it's going to have any bearing on you know the top four race and how that kind of plays out. So, uh, big victory for Liverpool, and you know, I know I know my buddy's a huge Liverpool fan. He actually won some money on this. So, um, overall, a very good weekend if you're a Liverpool fan. Yeah, City is closer to Sheffield United in the standings than they are to Liverpool at this point. So, I mean, if you had that midway through November, then kudos to you because you're a freaking, you know, Notre Dame. Um, so, anyways, we're going to be moving on to another topic. I'm not that well informed on it so far because I think it happened as recent as today. Uh, Matt, so I'll just go to you to break it down. There's some Arsenal news involving Pierre-Eric uh, Aubameyang. And it's just, I don't know. Apparently, Pet, Pet was telling me it was nuts. So, uh, just give us the lowdown on this. So pretty much in a nutshell, to kind of give you the condensed version of whatever, what at least I've been kind of keeping track of is aside from the fact that um, you know Arsenal are uh, they're a sinking ship at this moment in time between the Granite Shaka situation a couple weeks ago to now Aubameyang, who's been uh, one of their main producers really since he arrived at the club uh, a couple of Januarys ago. He's pretty much in a position where he's kind of befriending, if you will, um, the, some of the people from Arsenal Fan TV. I guess he's trying to he's hanging out with them and. You know, we obviously know what Arsenal fan TV are about. They're very vocal. They're very uh, you know, brash with their criticism. They're very outspoken, um, and fans should be. I don't, I don't, you know, blame any fan for being outspoken. And I think Arsenal fan TV um, has a good platform. Obviously, they're very passionate fans. But when you start having players on the club in a delicate moment, a delicate time where they're struggling, they're free falling. Their manager is on the hot seat. He could be fired any week. You really probably don't want to see some of your star players kind of mingling and hanging out, you know, and, and you know, kind of conversing on social media, if you will, with, you know, a, a group of, of individuals who are notorious for, and at least in my opinion, how I see it, I call it like I see it, um, kind of taking advantage and kind of capitalizing on 
Arsenal's freefall and their, their downfall as a club over the past couple of years. I think, you know, this is not just only an Arsenal problem. I think it's something that we're on social media. It's easy for, uh, you know, content creators, websites like, you know, that Arsenal Fan TV have to, you know, try and leverage the, the situation to further their platform, further their, their subscriptions, their, their views, their clicks, so on and so forth. And I think, you know, getting back in, and trying to reel this back in, to see Aubameyang, a player that's you know at the heart of this club, and some people were even saying that maybe he'd even get the captain's armband. You got to ask yourself, like, why is this guy, you know, coming out on social media and saying I can hang out, pretty much saying I can hang out with whoever I want. If you don't like it, then pretty much, you know, for lack of a better term, f you. Um, it's just really not a good look uh, for him, in my opinion. Uh, compounded with the fact that Arsenal are in such a state of disarray. For me, again, I wouldn't want to see my star players doing this, let alone any player in the squad doing this, because it only makes it worse, and you really kind of uh, negatively impact the team uh, in a moment where they need their players uh, primed and focused and ready to hopefully turn that around. And yeah, it's just kind of been a mess at Arsenal the past, uh, you know, really couple of years, if you will. Yeah, Zach, what what do you make of this situation? Not only the situation with Aubameyang, but I mean, just just Arsenal as a whole, because. When we were growing up, this is just a completely different type of club, team out there, you know, just from top to bottom. This just isn't the same. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this has sort of become a lost season for Arsenal. Um, I think it's abundantly clear that Unai Emery isn't the right man for the job, and yet... uh, Nobody seems willing to call the shot and and fire him. You know, um, this uh, the the other nonsense of Aubameyang. I mean, it's just pretty ridiculous. Even the fact that, well, one, he's obviously, you know, in my opinion, he's the club's best player, and he is a big reason why they still have a shot of getting Champions League football. Um, but he's also you know, his contract expires uh, in 2021, and certainly that, that that will play an even greater role in all of this uh, controversy. But, but yeah, I, I didn't really – I understand that he has – you know, he can, he can talk to every once, but uh, I do think that Arsenal fan TV are – in general, bad for Arsenal. And I think things like that, like Arsenal fan TV, are, are bad for football. And personally, I mean, this isn't just related to Aubameyang, but I I really don't like when players uh, manifest their feelings by liking a certain comment or a certain post on Instagram. You know, I think I, I would just prefer it be like, you know, back in the old days. Like, if you have a problem with a coach or a player – you go face to face and and you uh, mm-hmm. tell them what's on your mind. You know this whole uh, liking stuff on on Instagram and and unfollowing people. You know it's just it's sort of ridiculous in my opinion. Yeah, I I one hundred percent agree with you, Zach. I think it's we're in that their social media era where you know, everything you do and everything it's like there's always some some sort of underlying 
meaning to whatever you do on social media, whether it be, oh, this player followed this club, is he going to go there? And now it's in the, now it's kind of in the public eye and all the papers pick it up. And then you got, you know, something as simple as liking a comment, which all of us do on social media, right? To obviously a smaller, smaller scale and a less, a more, a less importance, of course, but, you know, something as innocent as doing that can, you know, kind of put you in a position, uh, a bad position and make you look really bad in the public eye. And, uh, you know, when you have a player like Obama Yang, who, you know, he's going to be important for them turning this around. And if they're going to make Champions League, if they're going to effectively steady the ship and get this thing back on track, they're going to need him to be completely focused and not doing the things that he's doing. And this happens. This is not shocking in a sense that, you know, when when you're losing, when you're, when you're as a club struggling and struggling to get results and you're just not playing your best, you know, it's almost just a culmination of things kind of hit all, hit that hit on the club and... You know, we see it, you know, not really only in, in England, but just, you know, top to bottom. And I know you're, uh, Zach, you're a very uh, big Barcelona guy. Um, you, you see it all over, right? You know, if, if a team's like Real Madrid's losing, then it's the coach, and then it's the player's going to leave, and, you know, X, Y, Z, so on and so forth. And, yeah, I, I don't want my players uh, having those sort of interactions on social media. I think it's good to be um, expressive, and, you know, we'll be see all the posts that they do post-game and all, so on and so forth. And I think there's a, a, a good spot um, for social media in in modern football, but I think the way it's consumed, the way it's used by some, is is uh, very uh, very wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, it's the social media age. Um, I, I I for one can't take Arsenal fan TV seriously when you get a grown man dressing up as David Luiz who weighs about like two hundred fifty pounds. So I mean, that's just me. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I definitely understand where all the frustration comes to in the situation. And you would expect more out of a veteran and uh, uh, experienced player like a Boomerang because I mean, this is just at this point I, I don't see what good it does for the club. I don't see what it does for morale and all those things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely would pay attention to some of this and, uh, it could be, uh, could be interesting come January to see what Arsenal does. Um, so moving on to league one now, um, not much going on, but we had an interesting matchup with Marseille and Lyon. Um, Matt, I'm going to turn to you this time around. Uh, did you get a chance, uh, to check out this match? Um, I actually, I actually got caught a glimpse of it. I wasn't completely focused on. It. I was actually in a bar watching this game in New York with a couple friends. Um, I, you know, there was a, quite a bit of people there watching the game. Obviously, uh, it's a, it's a pretty big affair when you see the, two of these clubs, two of the biggest French clubs uh, out there. Um, but for me, I, I, again, admittedly, I didn't see much of it. Maybe Zach can shed more light on it than I can. But um, I know when previous episodes we've been talking about Lyon's positioning um, and monitoring their situation quite a bit. Obviously, when they appointed Rudy Garcia. Um, Zach, have, what are your thoughts on uh, if, you, if you ever caught this game and really just Marseille and Lyon, Lyon as clubs in general at this moment in time in the season? Yeah, I mean, I did watch the game. Um, overall, I mean, I think it was sort of disappointing from Lyon uh, even taking into account the fact that Memphis Depay, who's probably been their best player since Rudy Garcia took over, uh, was unavailable. Even so, I felt that Lyon had what it took to um, to beat Marseille, and yet they they really didn't even touch them. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it was a bit discouraging since Lyon uh, had a a pretty promising performance midweek against Benfica, but this was just it was really poorly thought out. I thought by both Garcia. And the players, I mean, uh, 
like the the it was like the midfield was completely bypassed from Leon and and looking at it this way I mean Marseille they're they're playing um you know they've been playing without Florian Thovan who's arguably the best winger um since since the first day of September you know he's been injured uh and all the way since the first day of September and they they didn't replace Lucas Ocampos either. So they're basically playing with, uh, with without their two best wingers last season. So the fact that they managed to do this and the fact that they're second, um, I think speaks highly to Andre Villaboas's, uh good work, but it also speaks uh, a lot to the, just the poor level of competition and performances. I mean, this Marseille team is not that good. And uh, they even have a negative goal differential, which is pretty insane. Looking at the second best team in Ligue 1 has a negative goal differential. I mean, I, I, I don't think you'll find a, another second place team in any league. Um, maybe I'm wrong, that, but that has a negative goal differential. But yeah, overall, um, I thought it was a great performance from Dimitri Payet. I mean, he really showed signs of perhaps a late renaissance. You know, I really hadn't seen that good of a performance from Payet since, uh, you know, maybe 20, 2018, 2017. Um, overall, though, yeah, very disappointing for Leon, who uh, had had a lot of time to equalize and, and go ahead. I mean, Marseille were playing with 10 men for a good amount of time after Alvaro Gonzalez is uh, sending off. But... It was it was weird. It seemed like Leon almost got uh, worse with the red card. They they were playing um, they were playing scared, I would say. And I think also part of that was due to Garcia taking off Jeff Rain Adelaide, which I didn't really understand. He was sort of a he was definitely a bright spark going forward. And I think without Rain Adelaide and without uh, Depay, they definitely lack the tools to break down Marseille. So overall, yeah, it's, it's certainly embarrassing for Lyon to lose under such circumstances. Um, but on the contrary, it is, it's, it's great for Marseille to uh, get a derby win. Hey guys, before we move forward, we wanted to remind you that the State of Play podcast is sponsored by my bookie. As a true football fan, you probably already know, sure as the seasons change, Tom Brady will keep the Patriots in the game. Every weekend, our favorite gridiron warriors put their skills to the test, so why aren't you doing the same? We're almost halfway through the NFL season, so now is the time to get off the sidelines and get in the game with my bookie. My bookie is the premier place to bet all your favorite pro and college football action every single weekend. They always have the most up-to-date lines and most prop bets of any sports book on the planet. Best part is, if you join right now, my bookie will double your first deposit. That's right. If you put in $1,000, they'll give you $1,000. That's double your initial deposit, and you can use it on all your favorite picks, games, and props. Just use promo code LATEFEEDS to activate the offer. That's promo code LATEFEEDS to double your cash. L-A-T-E-F-E-E-S. Late fees, and join my bookie today. Yeah, um... I mean, look, tough times just continue for Lyon here. I mean, you would think they would have 
potentially been able to turn a tide. But look, it speaks volumes when your opposing team gets a red card in the 64th minute and you fail to capitalize on it. And I, that's just the reality of the situation over there. And who knows, maybe uh, maybe they turn the corner soon. But we're going to be turning the corner here to La Liga. Real Madrid starting to find some form. Um, they just absolutely dominated Galatasaray. Um I think I literally, it was one of those things where I went to go grab a drink of water. I came back and the score was like 2 nothing already within the first few minutes. Um, Rodrigo is just so impressive against them. And I think really the whole squad in general, you, you saw Eden Hazard over the weekend really start to find his form after uh, getting off to, you know, an injury riddled start. Um, you know, I mean, they, they got a chance to turn this whole thing around because in my opinion, Barcelona don't really look like a confident Barcelona team in all competitions. Um, they still manage to pick up points, obviously, because they're they're always going to manage to do that when you have Messi banging and free kicks like he does. But, uh, Zach, talk to me about the way Real Madrid have been playing the past few weeks and uh, who's really caught your eye. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Real Madrid look probably the best they have uh, since Zidane has, has taken over and is in his second term. I mean, um one thing that I will give Zidane, have to, you have to give Zidane credit for, is uh, the defense. I mean, I think they've had five straight clean sheets by now. And um, I think you also have to praise uh, just Madrid's ability to, you know, dust themselves off and and start fighting for uh, the league title. I mean... Uh, one player who I who definitely has caught everybody's eyes by now is is Rodrigo Goez. I mean, to be able to score a hat trick at 18 years old in the Champions League, it's it's incredible. And uh, he's you know I I think that he's pretty much made the right wing his own on that on on Madrid. Um, but yeah, I, I think that. This team has what it takes. If they can get going and and form a you know form solid consistency, they have what it takes to go the distance and win the league. I mean, I said a few um, a few months back that on paper alone, Real Madrid had the best transfer window in in Europe. I mean, looking at the quality that that they brought in, uh, Eden Hazard. Yes, he struggled, but he's gradually starting to find form. And once he's in top form, I mean, there's really no fullback in Spain that stands a chance against them. Um, and and looking at other players who've you know either been injured or who've just struggled uh, to adapt to one of the most demanding teams in in sports. I mean, Ferlan Mendy, Luka Jovic, these players, you know, they're young. They will improve with time. And yeah, I I think that. Uh, Messi has to be playing in Super Saiyan mode every single week if Barcelona are going to beat Real Madrid to the title this year. Matt, did you uh, catch any of Real Madrid lately? I have, um, and I, I know that for a fact. You know, uh, you know, Zach did a great job of kind of chronicling how they've uh, been able to kind of regain form and get back in a, in an optimal position where they they look like the Real Madrid we we know they can be and have been uh, for the past handful of years. Um, but they've been getting you know, some really good performances from guys like Federico Valverde in the midfield, from uh, the Uruguayan International, 
um, which I know, you know, it's it's never easy to be a young player at a club like Real Madrid and to thrive. But with between him and Rodrigo kind of shining the past handful of weeks, um, they're starting to get a lot of those those next wave of talents to come through and to kind of you know you know, shoulder some major responsibility in a in a in a season where you know it looked initially that that Zidane may you know be be quickly yanked from the job after you know him get just getting it you know uh, not too long ago uh, for the second time. But when you look at some of the players in the squad, um, you know they 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 have guys like uh, Tony Cruz playing to to the level that we know he's capable of. Casemiro, another one. If Luka Modric is, is kind of winds back the years a little bit and is the player that won the Ballon d'Or, um, there's there's Real Madrid have they're one of the few clubs where despite maybe not being as uh, clinical, as sharp, as uh, ruthless that we've seen in previous years when they had like Bale and uh, at peak form and, and Ronaldo, um, you know, they had a dynasty of the Champions League. You know, their team that has that pedigree in that tournament um, and overall to still uh, win certain things, win trophies and still have a successful season, um, whether or not they can maintain it remains to be seen, but a good victory on the weekend against Ivar 4-0. Um, that's definitely something to take into uh, the next coming rounds, of course, at least into the yeah, international break. But uh, shout out to Benzema, too. I think this is one of those players where um, I always find myself scrolling through my timeline and people kind of you know, keep talking about him. When it's all said and done, he's going to be one of those players or, or players that's kind of in the, in the grand scheme of things in this era. Khan maybe gets somewhat over overlooked and is really underrated because of um, you know his longevity in this in this sport since he really arrived at Real Madrid um, is really a sensation. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, he's one of those. He's a model of consistency. He's a player that I think Real Madrid, when push comes to shove, I think they can definitely rely on. And you know, look when Ronaldo was uh, sold to Juventus, I think a lot of people looked to Bale to be that guy, but I think Benzema is still the focal point of this attack in my opinion. I think he's one of those players that. In, in big games under the bright lights can deliver more than goals. I think he's a player that can do so much more um, than, than kind of contribute on the stat sheet. And I think if you're a Real Madrid fan, you know maybe you're not in a as ideal a situation as you want in terms of your form, in terms of the squad itself and the way it's um, you know kind of shaped currently. But I think at the same time, you're starting to see the pieces. You're starting to see things come together and you start to see some sort of potential um, and what the current Real Madrid could be and can do, and also what the future of Real Madrid could look like. So I think overall, Real Madrid have to be kind of pleased how they've been able to turn this thing around. Um, you know, after a kind of a somewhat of a rocky start to the season. Definitely a lot of rocky starts to the season, not only just on the field, as you mentioned, Gareth Bale, that whole saga going on in the summer. It's really been impressive. Credit to Zidane, like Zach said as well, for how they've been able to turn the corner like this. Moving on to the Bundesliga, Matt. Your bread and butter here. Your guy is just absolutely on fire. I don't know about you guys, but Robert Lewandowski for the 2019-2020 season, in my opinion, has probably been the best player or one of the three best players, uh, not only in all of Europe, but all the world. He grabbed two more goals in this matchup against Dortmund uh, for nothing. I mean, this was it was kind of disappointing overall. Um because I, I thought Dortmund, it would have been better if they gave him a better game. Because, you know, like, people want the narrative to change. They don't want to always see Bayern win the league every single year. They thought, hey, you know, they're slipping up. They just fired Niko Kovac. Maybe maybe there's some blood in the water. But uh, Bayern's still showing that they're top dogs. Matt, what do you think of your guy? I mean, he's just... Oh, he's, listen, he's, right now, he's the best striker in football, in my opinion. I think, you know, you, you could look at several other names and you can make your case for them, certainly. But I think the model of consistency, the, the, the pace at which he's scoring goals, 
um, and doing him in both competitions, despite Bayern Munich's obviously sacking of their of Kovac uh, and not really playing um, to the level that they they are capable of and the standard they're capable of doing. You know, this is the type of performance that you know you look back this stretch of form. You look back, you know, when when Robert Lewandowski hangs up his boots, as wow, this this was the type of striker he was, he, and this is the type of production he was capable of doing. I mean, he, he's scoring, you know, pretty much in every game of this season. I literally think he scored in every single game for Bayern Munich, uh, both in Champions League and the Bundesliga. But you know, between this and of course the performance on the weekend. Um, there's not much more else I can say that I haven't per- said in previous episodes. I think a lot of it's just going to come down to whether he can deliver in the big games, and I know Zach would agree with me on that. Is for all the good he's been able to accomplish, um, you know, uh, in, in at Dortmund and obviously at Bayern Munich, and, and just being, um, you know, the Poland's talisman over the years and helping them, you know, secure that World Cup berth and obviously um, have the Euro berth here for for next summer. He's got to be able to take it to the next level against. Those bigger opponents, when the when the stage is is larger, the lights are brighter, and I think that's what's ultimately going to decide, or whether or not you know he can maybe finish in a higher position if if everything works out the way it should, or hopefully it should, um, maybe win a Ballon d'Or or win some major major silverware or individual silverware. So I think ultimately, if he can find a way to kind of shake that reputation as a player that can score against smaller clubs, but when it comes to those knockout stages in the Champions League, those games where Poland really need him to deliver a goal or two, um, that's really going to tell us what type of striker um, he can be um, when it's all said and done. When you look at his entire resume, um, it, you know, certain players we all, we always attest to Ronaldo's, uh, you know, clutch factor, the clutch ability for him to, you know, carry teams when they're maybe down or, you know, put the team on their back and, and, and really just turn the game on its head by like he did last year, obviously, against Real Madrid with the hat-trick. I think Lewandowski needs one of those shining moments, one of those defi- career-defining performances in a game that matters so much because, look, let's face it, as you just mentioned, you know, a 4-0 win over Borussia Dortmund, a team that's always consistently in that conversation as, okay, they have a nice little team, they have a nice project, they have a nice system, um, but it's always Bayern. Bayern just continues to dominate that league, and I think, you know, when you keep doing what he's doing, I think it's as strange as it sounds, it's impressive, but it's not enough because, you know, it's like it, it's like with Juve. Everyone, you know, makes makes the case, while well, Juve's out, they're winning the league again. It's this league. What does that say about the rest of the league and the competition they're playing against, right? So that's how I've always observed Lewandowski as as a, 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 a Polish, you know, put some Polish blood in my in, in my genes, and also someone who's very fond of the Polish national team and follows him closely. Is I need to see a little bit more in knockout games for me to kind of put him up on that pedestal, that upper echelon. Um, but at this point in time, I, I think there's it's hard to argue he's he's one of the top players in football and he's playing at such a high level. Zach, disappointed in Dortmund this time around? Um. Not really. I mean, I think that Dortmund had been overachieving for uh, a few games, and it, it was only natural that Bayern uh, would settle the score with them. I mean, they do look uh, pretty reinvigorated ever since the sacking of Kovac, and I think that, yeah, I mean, I would I would argue that Lewandowski, obviously it's been – only three months, but I would say that so far he's been the best player in football this season. Um, but of course, the the main question is, can he, you know, can he do it on the biggest stages? He he failed to get it done um, against Liverpool this year. He failed to get it done in the World Cup. He failed to get it done 
you know, in, against like some Real Madrid and Barcelona in previous years. Um, so that's, that's definitely the big question. But uh, for just, just looking at this current season, uh, the opening three months, and, and as well as, you know, extending back to the start of the year even, I mean, Lewandowski has been absolutely incredible. Um, and he's, yeah, I mean, I really don't think that any team, I'm starting to think of a team in Europe who, uh, who is as reliant on one player as Bayern are to Lewandowski, excluding uh, Barcelona with Messi, of course. But, I mean, he's, he's been absolutely uh, just so consistent and in such great form. And I will be watching keenly to see if he can uh, keep it up during the biggest stages. Really quickly, because I know he's such a popular player around these days, especially for a youngster, Jordan Sancho. He got subbed off in this match. He's really had a difficult spell as of late. Is what do you what do you take from it? Is it is this something that you expect to continue, or is it just a rough stretch? Um, no, I I think it's just a rough stretch. I mean, you have to remember about Jaden Sancho. He's he's nineteen. And he's, um, you know, he's, he's coming off an incredible season. So I, all that football at such a young age will obviously take a toll on you, uh, both physically and mentally. So, I, I mean, I think it's natural that he uh, feels kind of this, I don't know, relapse. Um, I, think, I, I think that Sancho, yeah, he's, he's had a bit of a rough month ever since uh, – since being excluded from the uh, team for for showing up uh, late from international break, and he's you know been on the bench and so on, but but in general, I mean Dortmund, uh, not just Sancho, but Dortmund in general are going through a rough patch, so that will obviously uh, carry over to Sancho. I don't think that you can write off uh, Sancho just because of a bad month. I mean he's he's one of the best youngsters in football and I I expect him to I expect him to shake this off and uh find find form that can uh potentially take take Dortmund to the to a legitimate title race. And and you also have to remember that he was he actually did quite well um against Inter Milan in midweek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really impressive win for Dortmund midweek over at Inter. Just like to get that dig at them, by the way. Um, so, mentioning Inter, now moving over to Serie A, where there's a club that has been struggling more than anyone that I could really think of at this point in time, especially when you consider the expectations, Matt. Napoli, just in such a rough stretch. I, I can't really recall them as a club going through a stretch like this in years i mean it's really been a while now um there's this whole back and forth with the retreat that de Laurentiis ordered ancelotti and the players didn't pay any attention to it so they left and they went home and then de Laurentiis was angry and he almost fired ancelotti apparently um decisions are kind of not going their way in terms of referee calls in terms of var the ball's just not finding the back of the net they just seemingly try to hit the post almost every opportunity that they get i know we touched upon this last episode but it, it's still carrying over and a, a much needed international break for them you could argue 
but they got Liverpool and at Milan at the San Siro uh, coming back from international break. What do you make of this whole saga? And what do you think uh, should be their next move? It's a mess. And it's actually really surprising for me because I think, you know, when you looked at um, the core uh, of Napoli these past handful of years, really in essence since uh, Maurizio Sarri first took the job, um, they built such a great foundation to compete and be the anti-Juve. Um, and the fact that they were able to kind of keep these players intact um, and not be pluck, have not be rated, excuse me, um, from, you know, from the top clubs. Uh, you know, we obviously know the links that Koulibaly had to the Premier League. You know, there was links to Alan back in January for PSG. Um, Zelensky, obviously Hamshik went to China. Um, Lorenzo Insigne to Liverpool. There are, so... It, it, for them to keep the squad intact was was a, a refreshing sight to see because I think you know f- we always see with many clubs around Europe um, where you know they at the moment something is so spe- uh, is built and it's special. Um, there's oftentimes those big clubs ready to throw the money at them and it's just too good of an offer to refuse. But the fact that they were able to essentially replace Raúl Albiol with Costas Manolas and be uh, regressing defensively. Um, that speaks volumes, and I think there's it just goes it goes deeper into that there is some more things that we're maybe not finding out right now, um, but we're starting to find out obviously in pre in recent weeks with the retreat as you just mentioned. Uh, there's kind of a bit of a feud between Ancelotti and De Laurenti. Some of the players are um, you know hearing it on social media, especially Lorenzo Insigne. If you look at some of his recent posts, um, if you scroll down far enough, you see some. Uh, so some angry Neapolitan people kind of you know letting letting have it on uh, on social media, but yeah, it's just one of those things where you you're kind of stunned to see them so far down in the table. You expect them to be in that position that maybe enter in you know within a couple points, of course, of Juve at the top of the table. But right now it's Juve with 32 points in first, Inter one point behind them in second, and way down there is Napoli with 19 points. They're 13 points back of Juve, 12 games in. I mean they're they have no chance at a title at this point in time. And now you start to look and, and you wonder, is this where um, the the entire project gets blown up? Obviously, there's going to be players that stay. There's players that are still integral to the, to the project overall. But, you know, there are individuals in that squad where if you look at it, you got Peter Trzelinski, who is, is a young player who's 24, 25 in that, in that category or that age bracket where, you know, he will get it, garner interest from Premier League clubs. And I think maybe Liverpool are a fit, who knows, there's me just speculating here, but Koulibaly as well. I mean, at some point, if you're a player at this club and you see you you kind of not really chasing Juve for the title like most people expected them to, then you kind of have to put the ball in your hands and say, well, look, if we're not going to be able to compete for a title, I want to win, t- I want to win trophies. Guys like Alan, who are at that age, of, in that, that point of his career, where they want to play in the Champions League, they want to compete in the Champions League, they want to be a part of uh, something special win- and win silverware. And I think that's really what's going to be the most difficult thing for probably for Napoli fans to grasp in this moment of time um, is, you know, what does the future look like? Because I think obviously Ancelotti, there's, it's unlikely that he's going to, you know, be the coach beyond this year. He may not even last the year if the way, if, if they keep this up. Um, but then you also look at the nucleus, the core that made Napoli, uh, the anti-Juve these past handful of years under Sarri. And of course, last year uh, for, for good, a good portion of the season uh, in year one under, under uh, Ancelotti. So yeah, it's, it's going to be really fascinating to see what, 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 what transpires uh, with, with Napoli going forward. And, you know, look, I, I think you can point to uh, several different things as to why they're in the position they are in. Um, they, it's amazing because you see them play so well against Liverpool and beat Liverpool in the Champions League pretty convincingly. Um, but they, you know, drop points. They draw games. I think they've drawn four out of their past five games in Serie A competition. 
and you got to look at yours. You got to wonder. They're not finishing their chances. They're not as clinical. They don't have that ruthless uh, uh, demeanor about them where they're able to kill teams off like they used to, put four goals on a team, and really put them, put their foot down and, 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 and kind of get games out of the way quickly. Now they're bleeding games out here. They're, they're tying you know, clubs that they should be beating and should be beating single-handedly if they want to win a trophy, and they're just not doing it. And I think I, I don't anticipate it. Again, of course, they got Milan off the international break, as you just touched on. Um, so they're uh, probably the, the one team that Napoli does want to face because Milan are struggling themselves. But at the same token, Juve did come off a really pretty good performance in, in defeat to Juve on the weekend. So maybe that's fuel for them to kind of go at their, their former manager um, and, and really kind of put the nail in the coffin um, on Ancelotti because it feels like it's a day-to-day basis for him and his job uh, at Napoli. Yeah. Zach, looking, I don't know how closely you've been uh, following this situation, but there's a, there, this is just kind of bizarre in a way that this is kind of how it might actually end for this generation of uh like you know the stretch of napoli yeah i mean it was gonna it was gonna end sooner or later um and i think that i think perhaps some of the signs were there from the summer yes they signed uh the likes of herbing lozano and costas manolas and uh lg fem elmas but they also failed to sign uh some of their some of their biggest targets, such as uh, Nicolas Pepe and James Rodriguez. And I do think that this, um, I don't know if you want to call it a lack of ambition or just a failure to get the job done in the transfer window. I think it definitely played a role um, in Napoli's quick regression. Because looking at the squad, I mean, this is a squad that's, that's good enough to get top three. I mean, you have to evaluate and analyze the mental aspects of it because I think that in many ways Napoli's situation is similar to Tottenham's situation they're just they've arrived at the end of a cycle you know and the key players who 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 allowed uh the Napolitani to dare to dream they're they're on their way out and they really don't have much left in the tank I mean Dries Mertens will probably leave on a free next summer. Uh, Jose Callejon will start, will probably do the same. Um, and I just you have to feel that likes of Koulibaly, Alan, um, uh, Gulam, you know these players they they all will feel regret for not being able to win a Scudetto or, or go far in the Champions League because they certainly had what it took uh, both under Sarri and under Ancelotti. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been sad to see, but the fact is uh, it's, it's the end of the cycle for Napoli. And when you take into account the just the mental anguish of so many near misses with the Scudetto as well as just the... The, the 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 physical demand and the the fatigue that piles up after so many seasons i mean you can sort of start to make sense of why they've been so uh so lethargic this season yeah um kind of really disappointing in in terms of people who really wanted to see them do well you know it's i mean it's just it, it's it's not a great look for Serie A because i mean 
today, if you were to just say this team beat Liverpool, who is arguably the best team in the world at the moment, uh, you would have been looked at with 10 heads. Um, Something that is surprising as well this season in Serie A, Cagliari. Uh, Matt, I know we discussed them uh, at length uh, a little bit uh, last episode. We've we've talked uh, personally about them. We love what they did in the market after the sale of Nicolo Barella. Uh, and, and it's proven on the field. I mean, some of the guys that they've just brought in have just been producing at a high level now. They absolutely dismantled Fiorentina. And, and I wasn't that surprised that they took the three points. It was just really the manner in which they did it. Five different goal scorers uh, in this matchup. And this was coming off a win against Atalanta. Um, Cagliari are rolling, man. I mean, they're really on fire, huh? They are, and um, you know, really, a lot of the credit has to go to Rolando Maran uh, for the job he's been able to do um, since you know taking that role uh, back in 2018, I believe. Um, he was sacked from Kievo. Kievo obviously are in Serie B right now, um, <laughs> so the fact that he's able to te- take a team like Cagliari to be fourth um, again. So I know it's only 12 match days into the season, so you still have to take out a grain of salt. They still have to finish the job, right? We have to respect that. Um, but look, you look at their squad, and you know everyone knew they were going to be uh, a much improved squad. Uh, everyone saw the, the, the additions they made um, you know, after the sale of Nicola Barella to Inter, and I think they were saying, "Look, they got some nice, they they added some nice pieces to the puzzle." Cagliari, they're not going to be a pushover. They're going to be a team that um, you know could be in contention for a Europa League spot. Um, you know, obviously, it's tough to maintain that over a long stretch of the season because a lot of these clubs, a lot of these uh, mid-table provincial clubs, they don't have that pedigree to uh, withstand a, a 38-match schedule and ultimately see these things through. Um, how many times have we seen some of these clubs and you're like, wow, like this team is in fourth after 15 matches and all of a sudden they you know, get an injury or they fall off, they regress, uh, they don't have it in them to finish it off. And you're looking at them and, it, you know, the, the key a key addition for me, and, and I think, you know, we both would, everyone here would agree with it, was Roger Nyangla. And he added a little bit of that punch to that midfield, that that, that little bit of class and, and that veteran presence who, who can really decide games on his own. Obviously, we you know, we, everyone could touch upon uh, Echelotto Giovanni Simeone in the striker position, Marco Roj, um, you know, former Napoli player, um, who he's gotten, the, obviously he has talent, but he really wasn't given much of an opportunity um, at Napoli under Sarri and Ancelotti. Uh, you got Nandez, you got, you know, Robin Olsen, the outcast from Roma. Like, they're putting together a squad. Ja Pedro, who's another veteran player, he's playing in a forward position uh, as a playmaker. He's doing a lot of different things for them, and he's putting up some pretty good numbers himself. But Roger Nangolan's performance on the weekend um, was one of those signature performances that we saw so many so many times at Cagliari, and as well as uh, in his first stint, of course, there, excuse me, and at Roma, and ultimately what earned him the move to Inter, where he was pretty much shoved out the door by Antonio Conte, and you know, now he's starting to prove that maybe Inter made a mistake here. I think obviously Conte um, and Inter are in a very good position. They're one point off the off the, the the top spot from Juve, and they're doing pretty well in the Champions League. Go, okay, although again, the results are not showing that. Um, but when look, when you have a guy like Raja Nainggolan, who, despite all the controversies behind his partying, behind his uh, the smoking, the New Year's uh, video that he put out, uh, if you guys recall that as well, <laughs> uh, he still has he, he still has plenty in the tank, and he could still be a big difference maker for for any club. And we're really starting to see with Cagliari on the weekend. He had the one goal and three assists um, in the five two defeat to Fiorentina, and this is one of those signature performances in those. It was those efforts where you're saying, 
this guy still has it and he has something to prove and it's really it's really exciting to see a team like Cagliari in fourth I know there's going to be many out there who are going to you know take a simple glance at the Serie A table and they go wow really your league has Cagliari in fourth and you have Napoli in seventh like and you have Atalanta Lazio Milan's all the way down there but I think at the same time it just goes to show you that this league is so uh, hard to predict on a week-to-week basis it's so hard to predict season to season, because we saw it last year with Atalanta, what they were able to accomplish. Um, and of course, on the weekend, it's funny, they actually drew Sampdoria, a team that was in last pace for much of the season already. So it, it just kind of, you know, had, the league has that parity. And when you see a team like Cagliari doing so well and overachieving so early on in the season, again, three, 12 matches in, you kind of have to, you know, at least keep an eye on them and see if this is something that's real, or if it's just kind of a mirage, and eventually they're going to come uh, down down to earth and regress to the norm, which would be probably in that zone of being a, a Europa League contender. But shout out to them. I think it's it's important to see some of these clubs um, not kind of consistently be competing in the, rele- the relegation zone, but trying to make those steps up in the table, trying to push forward for a Europa League spot or a Champions League spot. And um, yeah, they're one of the teams that's uh, definitely a big surprise early on. Yeah. Um, it- not not to harp too long on this, but uh, Zach, a- any opinions on Cagliari? Uh, did did you like what they did in the transfer market over the summer? Because I thought it was one of the more underrated ones in Serie A. Yeah, I was saying um, at the moment that Cagliari were putting in the the best uh, transfer window um, in Italy. I mean, I think that what what Carly has managed to do is pretty impressive and. Um, to be able to uh, bring in the likes of Nandes, Oliva, and Nangalan with that money from the sale of Nicola Barella, which is so shrewd. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was saying at the moment that that I, I expect big things of Cagliari, and you know, even with um, even with Kragno's injury, you know, they've managed to bounce back. Uh, Carly did well to bring in Robin Olsen on on loan and you know just just the little pieces the little you know loan moves or uh sales that cost you know less than a million euros was really impressive and i think that they definitely have what it takes to to go to go deep this year to to go deep in in their run for a a top four spot yeah, definitely going to be exciting to see where that spot is. As of today, they have the fourth spot. They're actually two points ahead of Atalanta and Roma. Pretty wild to think about. Um, something that wasn't that wild and kind of predicted over the weekend, uh, Juve beat Milan again, unfortunately, uh, to say, as a Milan fan, and I know Matt is as well, well-documented for both of us. Um Milan haven't won in Torino in eight years since they won the Scudetto uh, back in 2011. I will say this, though. I think Milan's performance over the weekend was somewhat uh, pleasantly surprising to see how how they uh, kind of really battled for the majority of the game until Juve just simply do what they always do. And it happened last year when they faced off. The second Juve just makes a substitute... The, the difference in quality between the two sides is just so glaringly obvious. And, and it's really just for any team that really faces Juve in Italy is that when you're able to take off someone like Cristiano Ronaldo and put on a player like Balo Dybala, I mean, what can you say, right? I mean, it's 
it's difficult to to keep up with that especially when Milan's playing in a in a style of where the high press is going on they have all these young and inexperienced players where they tire out they're prone to making mistakes and and again they're beat by individual brilliance by Paolo Dybala finished with the right foot instead of his signature left uh Matt what did you think of this game overall was it somewhat encouraging for Milan to do this and and Juve once again not playing great for 90 minutes but finding a way to get I think it was a it was an encouraging uh performance for Milan it was it was admirable uh as well to see you know some of the players come out and play have their best performance of the game or of the season excuse me um in in a tough environment uh with Allianz Stadium uh, you know, an an environment that obviously Juve are notorious for for having or treating like a fortress. Uh, really, since they they've moved into that venue, um, to see you know Andrea Conti, uh, Ismail Benacer, Rad Krunic, and some of these other players in the squad, Teo Hernandez, another one, you know, have good performances where you can kind of you know feel something that like okay, maybe maybe these players are turning the corner. Maybe the squad in general, after being kicked in the teeth so many times this season. Are, are are maybe finding that there is light at the tunnel at the end of the tunnel um, for them this season. I know they're such a, in the deep spot right now. I think they're in twelfth, if I'm correct, and they're not far off fourteenth. So they're not far off relegation, um, which is is very concerning. I will say that, um, and they do have Napoli, of course, off the international break. But you know the performance that the Milan were the the, the match was there for Milan to get something from it, and I think that's what's really kind of disappointing for me when I was watching this game. As they lack the end product, they lack the cutting edge in the final third with Piontek, um, you know, not not capitalizing on that great ball in from Suso. Um, they they had a couple opportunities from set pieces, from corners, from free kicks with Hakan, uh, to to test Wojciech Szczesny, who had a really good game. I thought he was a, a, a top performer in this one, uh, as well as um, Paolo Dybala, who came off the bench and scored the match winner, of course. But uh, as you mentioned, you know, it just there's there's a, a huge discrepancy and huge difference in quality here. And when you bring out a guy like Paolo Dybala, who um, you know, with, with with the game hanging somewhat in the balance and it looking very tightly contested, you know, you have that player who can give you that one solo moment of brilliance, and that's exactly what he was able to do. And not, not so much just the goal that he scored with his right foot, because I thought that was impressive the way he kind of uh, was able to trick Romagnoli, kind of turn him around and get uh, that strike onto his right foot and, and get past Donnarumma. But his movement, such it's such an, a key factor for him, and I think we're really starting to see, and I think everyone's starting to see that Paolo Dybala is a really, really class player. And I think it's tough to kind of, you know, quantify his his, his performances because his his numbers himself don't speak to that. Um, he's not a top scorer in the league. He's not a top assist man in the league. Um, but he's really not playing starter minutes. It seems like every week it's, you know, Iguain Ronaldo, and then it's him starting in a game, and then it's him playing 15, 20 minutes off the bench. He's not really getting those consistent runs in the squad um, on a week-to-week basis that he deserves, and that which, in essence, earned him the number 10 shirt at the club. But I think, and I wrote about this in, in my piece for International Champions Cup, I think one of the biggest takeaways I, I found from this, and I'm starting to really start to see this, um, with obviously all the you know all the stuff surrounding Ronaldo and his exit from the game yesterday, uh, or Sunday, shall I say, this recording this on Monday, I don't think that Juve can realistically expect to win a Champions League trophy this year if they can consistently give and sh- and and rely on Ronaldo the way that Real Madrid did in previous years, and and really the way um, that Ronaldo is expected to be relied on. I think he, it's only natural that he's a player. Look, he's entering his... I know he's a physical specimen. He's a player that's in such fantastic shape. But it's 
natural for players to start to kind of break down a little bit to be um, having to change their game and, and have to suit and cater to um, you know the, the physical demands of the league. And I think we're starting to see that with Ronaldo. I think in time, I think Sarri really has to make a tough decision with Ronaldo and kind of manage his workload a bit, somewhat similar to what we're seeing in the uh, in NBA, of course, with LeBron James all these years, where we know he's got more miles on him than the average player, right? At 35, uh, you know, 34, 35, Ronaldo's still, again, in peak position, peak form, uh, and peak physical shape. But he's got so many miles on him, so many minutes, because he's always been healthy that eventually something's got to give. Eventually, you got to look to other options. And I think Dybala, this is where he really will come into play and be a big uh, player for Juventus. You're starting to see it on a week-to-week basis, him score the big goals and get the big assist, him rescue them in the Champions League like he did against Lokomotiv a couple weeks ago. So I I think this was a really telling performance from Dybala and from Juventus in general, who really aren't playing great football at the moment. Neither is Ronaldo himself. But... Eventually, I do think that Juve are going to hit that that gear that we expected them once they hired Maurizio Sorry, But I think they really start to have to rely on certain players other than Ronaldo to save them in certain performances. Because let's face it, eventually, you know, you're going to have to you know, lean on a different player in the event that Ronaldo is under a, a little bit of a workload management and he is sitting out in certain games because... He is need. They don't. It doesn't look good right now. I don't know what his status is going to be moving forward. I think the international break comes at a great time for him, um, and they're still in a good position in the league table, of course. But at the same time, they the goal is to get the Champions League, and if it, Ronaldo's not Ronaldo in the games that mean the most, they're not going to get that objective. I just don't see it. So I think that's one of the biggest tellings and or shall I say takeaways uh, from this performance. But it, I think Milan have some things positive things to take away from themselves. Pioli uh, has done a pretty decent job, aside from what the results will tell us. It's just going to be a matter of whether or not they can put these performances back-to-back and string something positive together. Um, you know, Obviously, the, the defeat to Lazio didn't help, but a performance get like this against a team that's won the league the past eight straight years, it, it bodes well for what Milan hopes to do moving forward in the season, and I think that's what Milan fans have to kind of grasp onto at this point because there's not much else they can grasp onto. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, Milan, easier said than done. <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head with everything there. Zach, uh, what have you made of this match? What do you kind of, how do you view Juve at this point in time during their season? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, uh, Juventus's the, the Sari experiment has to be considered a success at this point. You know, top of their Champions League group, top of the table, Um I do think there are certain issues, though, uh, at least stylistically, with Sarri's style, and we sort of saw those not just at not just um, not just at Chelsea, but at Napoli as well. Um, but yeah, no, I know I think that Juventus are 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 doing well at this point, but um, I, I they would not be considered uh, one of my one of my favorites to win the Champions League and and they they have been uh they they were last season and they have been in previous years and this current Juventus side um good enough to win the Scudetto but I just I I, it doesn't really convince me as a team that can go all the way to the Champions League semifinals for example I mean uh one I think that the the loss of Chiellini will be massive in those kinds of games and also just um 
looking at this team right now, I, I don't see them getting past a side like uh, PSG or Liverpool. I, I just, for me, they they need to reinforce in in certain areas to to get to that point again, um, which is obviously tough when you have such a uh, stretched wage bill. But yeah, I think that it'll it'll be really interesting to see who ends up winning the Scudetto between Inter and Juve. Um, but I I don't think that either of them have what it takes to go far in the Champions League this season. Yeah, definitely struggling in that competition once again for Juve. It'll be interesting to see how they progress under Sarri. Uh, A season has come and gone in the MLS, and one of Seattle and Toronto have won once again. Third time they've reached the final against each other. This time Seattle comes out on top. Um, We were talking about fortresses at, at Juve and how well they play at home. Seattle is just a juggernaut at home. They thrashed LAFC to get to the final, and again, they they win this this one. They hoist another cup. Guys, uh, either of you can go first on this, but what did you think of, of Seattle this season and just the way that they've been a consistent winner and, and showing up when it matters most in the playoffs? I think, you know, you, you, you Seattle, again, like, like I alluded to in the previous episode, they're one of those clubs and that can take advantage of the, the format for MLS playoffs. Obviously, you know, they they're the way the season shapes up, they may not be the team that's going to finish, you know, first. Obviously, you know, you, you know this historic season that LAFC had um and, and some of these other clubs are able to do week on a on a on a season to season basis, but you know, this is Seattle Toronto was a, uh, the third time these clubs have or franchises shall I say have met in a final in the past four years which means they're doing something right behind the scenes they're building a strong foundation and they're building that longevity and that model that is able to work and get them through and navigate the, the playoffs and get to a final where obviously that's the end game right is to is to hoist the cup which Seattle were able to do um, once again here with a 3-0 three excuse me 3-1 win over Toronto and Nicolas Adero is having a, uh, a great time in Seattle uh, obviously he's one of the, the core members of the squad and the fact that they're able to hoist another cup it just shows to show you that for all the good that some of these other franchises are able to uh do on a, on a season to season basis in building um, these, these state of the art stadiums. You get these big world class players, uh, the Velas, um, the Ibrahimoviches. There's something to be said uh, about teams that know what it takes. They they know what they ha- they're doing. A lot of the things are right with, that are required of a, of a franchise in Major League Soccer specifically because again, it's it's obviously a different format, different system than we're accustomed to seeing in the leagues that obviously we cover on this podcast consistently. But yeah, 3-1 victory for Seattle. Uh, as you mentioned, a fortress century link field, which is also somewhat of, has been somewhat of a fortress for the uh, Seattle Seahawks as well. Um, so yeah. They I cause earthquakes over there, the fans. They're insane. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it, it's a tough environment to play in. Um, they're, they're, they're a model of consistency throughout. And they're one of those, fran- they're those franchises where you look, you, you have to look at and appreciate what they're doing um, year to year because it's, you know, when players come and go, they somehow always find themselves in the conversation in the thick of things to win uh, trophies. And it, it may not be the flashiest. It may not be the most eye-popping and, and eye-catching. But, you know, results talk. Results, you know, ultimately tell everything about what, what type of season a, a franchise had. And they had a sensational one as the winners. Zach, Seattle win the title again. What would you think? I mean, great, great performance from them. 
just throughout the playoffs. I mean, to be able to get to the final for uh, their third time, third time in four years, I believe, it's it's something special. And when we look back on this decade in MLS, uh, Seattle are definitely going to be seen as the defining side of the decade. Um, but yeah, no, hats off to Brian Sch- uh, Schmetzer. I mean, he had a good game plan and. I think that Seattle are they they really do set an example for the rest of the league um on how they run things both on and off the pitch um and I, I thought that it was interesting um perhaps telling us a little about the direction of MLS that the two teams that were favored to get to the final and that were uh so heavily reliant on their individuals Atlanta and LAFC, they managed to lose. Whereas the teams that were really more solid and, and had more reliant on tactics rather than individuals, um, Seattle and Toronto got to the final. But yeah, great, great work from Schmetzer. And that's not going to be the last time that we see them in an MLS Cup final. Yeah, definitely a great season to them. Congratulations on another championship over there in Seattle. All right, moving on to our questions. We got a ton of questions. I think this is the most that I've seen since I've been here. Zach, obviously we know the following that you have. A few Arsenal questions in here, so I'll get those out of the way first. Um, This one comes from Cappuccino. (laughs) So why do you think Arsenal are so adverse to signing players intra-league? For example, Robertson, when they needed a left back this summer with Jota and Docor, where the exact player, uh, the profile of the player that they needed uh, running power. Um, So, yeah. Um, It's a good question. I'm not really sure if I have the answer to that, but I would say that Arsenal are... Have, have been considered for a while, have been considered an, a sort of international club. You know, looking back um, 10, 15 years ago, um, even 20 years ago, Arsenal were sort of the first Premier League side that took advantage of, uh, of the talent that France has to offer, whereas other teams were focusing more on intra-league signings. Um, and we've we've seen that sort of international flair, uh, international flair, um, play a part in in Arsenal's decision making both on and off the pitch. I mean, bringing in, for example, Wenger, um, who was a Frenchman coaching in Japan at the time, bringing in Unai Emery, who was a Spaniard coaching in France at the time. Uh, yeah, they they've been keen to use. Um, they've, it seems like they've been more keen to target international um, players and managers rather than interleague. I, I do think that part of that um, could be the fact that Premier League players often have a premium on them and are naturally overpriced. But yeah, yeah, I think that, that two main uh, reasons why are just Arsenal have always been sort of an international club. Uh, they've brought in, they brought in Wenger, who's a Frenchman managing in Japan. They brought in Emery, who was a Spaniard managing in France. Um, and they were really the first Premier League side to take advantage of the talent that was on offer in France. 
Um, and of course, you have to take into account the fact that Arsenal's, you know, their finances were certainly a bit shaky after the move from Highbury to the Emirates. And the fact is they needed to, they, they couldn't afford that Premier League premium. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a reason why Premier League proven players are overpriced to a certain degree. But yeah, I think that those are all uh, main reasons why Arsenal have, haven't really focused as much on interleague signings as uh, United or Liverpool have, for example. Yeah, um, definitely uh, something that Arsenal will probably have to look towards changing simply because what they're doing right now isn't working. Um, so Michael asks, thoughts on Chelsea's side so far this season? Which top-tier players can they attract when the ban is upheld? Uh, well, not upheld, I think he means when the ban is lifted. But, uh, yeah. I think that their number one priority should probably be Jaden Sancho. Um, mm. I mean, one, he's, you know, he's 19 uh, years old. He's English. He's going to be one of, if not the most sought-after um, player next summer. Um, I, I think that United... Real Madrid and a few others will be in for his services. Um, but yeah, I think Sancho, and, and he's also a Chelsea fan, so let's take that into account. So yeah, I think that Sancho would, would work perfectly on, on the right or the left. Um, I mean, just envisioning it, I think that um, a, a front three, playing behind the striker, whether that's T- Tammy Abraham or someone else, but a front three um, of Sancho, Pulisic, um, and hudson Doy would just be stuff of dreams. Of course, you have Mason Mount and others who are going to fight for a starting spot. But yeah, I think that Sancho should probably be their, uh, their number one priority in this next summer. Yeah. Definitely going to be interesting to see what Chelsea does there. Um, Frank Lampard's done a very nice job for them. Last question before we get into the player profile. This is from Timmy. What do you think of Fede Valverde? I think that um, I think that to a certain degree, every single team needs a player like Federico Valverde, a player who can just really do the dirty work in midfield and and, and clean up and, and, you know, run a lot and, and go from box to box. That's, that's really what um, Valverde does best. You know, he's kind of a complete midfielder. I think that every team, whether that's, you know, Chelsea with Conte or Inter with Sensi, uh, you know, they need a player like Valverde. And it's no secret that once, once Valverde um, slotted into the starting lineup that Real Madrid's results started to just completely improve. I mean, uh, I think that in some ways, Real Madrid failing to sign Pogba and uh, Van de Beek was, was a blessing in disguise because it allowed them, it, it really forced Zidane to give uh, Valverde regular chances in midfield. And yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if Real Madrid are going, are to win the league this this season, then Valverde is going to uh, play a key part. I mean, 
not not every player can bench player like Modric. So I, I really think that what Valverde has done is um, has to be praised. Yeah. All right. We just want to thank everybody for sending in all their questions. We're sorry we couldn't get to all of them, as you know. Um, so we'll be moving on to the final part of the show, the player profile. For this week's player profile, we'll be profiling Myron Baudu from AZ Alkmaar. Zach, take it away. Yeah, so Myron Baudu, he's just a really exciting striker. Um, I believe he's one of the top five players in terms of goals and assists um, in Europe this season. And at 18 years old, I mean, he's, he's set for great things. Um, one of the reasons why I like Boadu is just his, his movement. He really knows how to gain space away from, from the, the defender and just find that pocket of space in the box. Um, he's a deadly finisher. And I, I honestly think that um, he has what it takes to be not only the first choice center forward for the Netherlands, but uh, one of the best strikers in football. Um, I've, I've watched a few, quite a few uh, games of this Oz side this season, and he's, he's always impressed me. I mean, the, the attacking duo, attacking trio, excuse me, of uh, Calvin Stangs, um, Same Idrisi and Myron Boadu, it's there are a few tridents in Europe that are as deadly as it, and Boadu, uh, Boadu's goals, Boadu's just pure clinical finishing has played a, a massive role in it. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of him, and I definitely think he's one of the players who you will be hearing a lot about um, in the coming years. Awesome. That's definitely someone to keep an eye on. That was a great profile. Thank you so much, Zach. Now this is the end of our show here. You guys can always email us at stateofplaypod at gmail.com for sponsorship, collaboration, whatever you're interested in. You can find me on Twitter at Martino Puccio. Matt, where can the people find you? Okay, you guys can find me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo. And yeah, thanks a lot for the support. And I got some, uh, some, some, some exciting stuff coming, so just stay tuned. But yeah, thank you for the support as always. Zach, where can everybody find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, at Zach Lowy on Twitter um, and as well as uh, BreakingLines.com, my website. All right. I want to thank Zach so much for being on with us this episode. It was a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for all the insight and all the analysis. Guys, please follow him. Check out all of his work. Same thing with Matt. Please like, rate, subscribe to the podcast. It really helps all of us out over here. And we'll see you in the next episode.